Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. George Buttrick was the pastor of the Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he served that congregation for almost 30 years, around the same time that Edward Pruden was shepherding this congregation here in Washington back in the first half of the last century. Buttrick had three sons, and one of them told of how, because of their father's ministry, there was always a constant stream of guests in their home, so much so that, in fact, it began to seem to the boys that their house was less like a home and more like a hotel. And so sometimes, just to blow off a little good-natured steam, the boys would play pranks sometimes on the overnight guests, and they loved one prank in particular. The boys would find the very best mystery novel they could lay their hands on, a story with an absolutely riveting beginning, with fascinating characters and delicious twists of plot all throughout, and most of all filled with nail-biting suspense. They found a thriller you couldn't put down, and they put it down in the guest room on a nightstand by the bed. But they only put it there after they had carefully cut out the last chapter, where the mystery is solved and everything is brought to conclusion and you can start breathing again. So cruel. Next morning, to their absolute delight, some overnight guests would come stumbling down to breakfast with bloodshot eyes, crazy with frustration, desperate for an ending. One of the sons told about running into one of their victims years later, who told him, I had to go out and buy the book. It's amazing, isn't it, how the ending changes everything. We've arrived at an ending today. For the past six weeks here in worship at First Baptist, we've kept vigil at the foot of the cross, listening to the last words of Jesus as he died by crucifixion. And today we hear the final word from the lips of Jesus of Nazareth on the cross from John 19. A jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the wine on a branch of hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the wine, he said, it is finished. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. I realize that when most of us show up on Easter, we have, you know, some of us some have, have at least some notion of what worship is going to involve on Easter Sunday. On Easter, for example, we just know we're going to say and sing Christ is risen at least half a dozen times. We'll hear alleluias more than usual. The music will be celebrative, not a minor chord within miles of the place. And when it comes time to open the Bible and hear the message from the preacher, you can pretty much assume you're going to hear about the empty tomb. And so some of you are thinking right about now, okay, it's April 21st. I know it's Easter Sunday. We have reservations for brunch. There'll be ham. Why are we still at the cross? The cross was Friday. Well, you're right. We're a little off the timeline this morning. Or are we? Because if it's the Easter story we're telling, then we must tell the truth. 
And the truth is, the only Easter we get is by way of Good Friday. In the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is never separated by more than a hyphen from the cross, which is why we really can't expect this celebration this morning to mean much if we haven't been stunned, if we haven't been horrified by the death in and around us and the death all over him. All four gospel writers tell about the death and resurrection of Jesus. What I particularly love about John's narrative is that in his telling, Jesus begins the triumphant Easter cry, not outside the empty tomb, but back on the cross where we and the world were at our darkest hour. I love hearing this word from the cross on Easter for one thing, because it opens up some fresh sky, doesn't it? Uh, in the conversation about what the cross of Jesus is for and what it did for us and what it means for our living today. I, for some of you in this room who happen to grow up in church, and I'm sure there are some, I wonder if the cross maybe has been a source of confusion for you because of a schizophrenic picture of God that you got handed somewhere along the way about a God who created us and everything that is and who loves us, but who also needs to punish us because we can't follow the rules. Which, of course, is where Jesus comes in, who is God's son and also God himself. God loved Jesus. Tell me if you've heard this, if this is familiar. But, but God had to kill Jesus because you cheated on your SAT or lied to your mother or had an affair or robbed a bank or stole a pack of gum. God killed Jesus rather than punish you because somebody had to pay. And this news should make you just grateful enough that you believe and, much more importantly, that you behave. Does this sound familiar to anybody? What I just described is, is a particular way of explaining the cross of Christ. It's not actually in the New Testament. Did you know that? But it's been a darling of Protestants since about the time of the Reformation, ever since poor dear Martin Luther misinterpreted one little verse from 2 Corinthians. And without launching into a history of atonement theories in ancient Israel and early Christianity, I want to say as plainly as I know that the notion that what God mostly is is mad at us is as wrong today as it was 500 years ago. God loves us not because of our ability to be good. God loves us because God is good and because God is love, period. Yes, we're all total fixer-uppers with our dented fenders and chipped paint. But the love and grace of God have nothing to do with how well we perform or how hard we try or the degree to which we get it right. It is about and only about unconditional love. The other reason I love hearing this final triumphant cry from the cross on Easter Sunday is this. I've had about all I can take of death 
in all its ugly forms down here. Death is real. Death and grief are heartbreakingly real. We didn't come here today to lie about that. How could we? This very day began with news of bombings across Sri Lanka. Some 200 people killed, most of them worshipers, on Easter Sunday. Death is malignantly persistent. Murder, poverty, genocide, racism, sexism, oppression, corruption, war. Every second of every day in every corner of the earth, death is putting a hand on somebody. That cold, leering, sallow face is standing next to someone, old someone, young, healthy, sick, poor, rich, nobody is immune. And death goes to work inside of us too, doesn't it? Strangling the passion and purpose that we were created for until there's just a hollow shell of the person we were made to be. And it's because the clutching hands of death are everywhere, inside of us and all around us, that this final cry from the cross becomes our Easter proclamation. Jesus delivers a preamble to his resurrection from the cross itself. It is finished. And as John reports about this final moment of Jesus' life, there is no resignation, no sigh, no whimper. It's a victory cry lifted by one who has fought and won the greatest battle. Jesus cries, it is finished. And even though then he bows his head and dies, you get the feeling that the bones of death have already been crushed. See, the life, the freedom God gives is not by means of some clever end run around our problem but by Christ battling my problem, your problem, the world's problem to the death. And death is a goner, it just doesn't know it yet. I read a story about a couple who were Bible translators serving in a remote part of South America. And one day, an enormous snake, much longer than a person is tall, slithered right through their front door and into the kitchen of their little house. Terrified, they ran outside and searched frantically for someone who might know what to do. And a machete-wielding neighbor showed up to the rescue, calmly marched inside their home and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. And the neighbor walked back outside triumphant and assured the couple the, the reptile had been defeated, but he gave them this warning. It's going to take a while, he said, for that snake to realize it's dead. Apparently, uh, the snake's neurology and blood flow are such that it can take considerable time for the thing to stop moving after decapitation. And so for the next hour, the couple was forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing furniture, flailing against the walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood it no longer had a head. Friends, sin and death are a lot like that big snake. They've already been defeated. They just don't know it yet. And in the meantime, they're going to do significant damage down here. Maybe that's why 
John wants us to hear the early strains of resurrection power even from the cross. It's finished, Jesus said. What's finished? Well, there are so many ways we could say it, but my favorite image is from the book of Revelation where Christ is pictured holding, of all things, a set of keys. John has this vision of the resurrected Jesus in all his glory, and John says, when I saw him, I fainted dead at his feet, but he pulled me up, reassuring me and saying, don't be afraid. I am the first, I'm the last, I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive and my life is forever. And you see these keys in my hand? These are the keys to death and hell. So friends, this morning, picture Jesus bounding out of the empty tomb with the keys of death and hell and everything else that's killing you down here swinging from his belt. That's what he finishes in his death and resurrection. He finishes forging the keys against every door slammed and locked by the powers of sin and death in the world. Every life in this room knows what it means to be a prisoner of something, to feel locked in, shackled, bound by a habit, a relationship, a memory, a fear, to feel locked in by anger, by boredom, by depression, by something so dark and deep it's hard to admit it even to yourself. But oh, friends, here is the promise of this day. This is the Easter news. Though life has locked you in, though death has locked you in, the love of God in Christ turns you loose, makes you free. And now there is no failure of yours, no dark memory of yours, no rebellion of yours, no sadness, no fear, no, no death that has the last locking word on your life. Jesus Christ has been there and he knows the way out. It is finished, he cries. Now the powers of sin and death and fear are still dangerous. Do not take them lightly. They're still thrashing about, wreaking havoc. But the love of God has already broken the power of evil and death and sin over us, which means we can fight our battles with confidence and with hope. And we can live our lives not in fear anymore, but in trust. And so brothers and sisters, trust the one who has overcome. You can live, you can love, you can try without being afraid in this world because as John sings from Revelation and as we'll be singing at the end of worship today, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's why we say it is finished. And that's why we say Happy Easter. And so friends, from the one who holds the keys from the one who holds your life. Happy, happy Easter. Pray with me, please. Oh, great God, how can we begin to say thanks enough 
today for love that broke the back of death, broke the power of death to hold us. To you now belong all glory and honor and power and praise forever and ever. Alleluia and amen.